This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge is sponsored by SeatBoost, an airline solution and technology platform that maximizes ancillary revenue by selling upgrades for expiring seat inventory. Visit SeatBoost.com slash Airline Weekly to discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. That's S-E-A-T-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash Airline Weekly. We've talked a lot about the golden age that U.S. carriers have seen in recent years, but another airline market appears to be experiencing a golden age, too. And making this all the more surprising, unlike in the U.S., it's a market far removed from the major centers of economic activity. We're talking about Australasia, a market that includes Qantas and Air New Zealand. Is it really a golden age? Well, Qantas had its best year ever in 2015 with an operating profit margin of 11%. In 2016, it nearly did as well with a 10% margin, and in 2017, it again hit 10%, and that was perhaps the most impressive year because it came despite rising fuel prices. And then there's Air New Zealand, an airline with its main hub in a very lovely but very isolated country. It's safe to say Air New Zealand doesn't have a lot of global connecting traffic, but what they do have is profits. Like Qantas, Air New Zealand started the decade struggling, but then posted a 15% margin in 2015 and a 14% margin in 2016. In 2017, margins fell to 10%, but it's still double digits. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. Joining me is the congenial Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We'll talk more about recent results at Qantas and Air New Zealand. Also, where does the less successful Virgin Australia fit into this? Are they missing this golden age? Scandinavia's SAS once again saw losses in its fourth quarter. We'll talk about why that's not awful. Meanwhile, Avianca overcame a tough pilot strike. And finally, we'll close the show with a rather interesting interview with the vice president of the Americas at Qatar Airways. It's a jam-packed airline weekly lounge, but come in anyway. Always room for one more. Thanks for joining us. We're starting the show with the Australasian Airlines. Both Qantas and Air New Zealand have seen some revolutionary turnarounds in recent years. Seth, what are some of the macro conditions that have helped them? Well, like a lot of places where airlines do well, never underestimate the power of tourism. Inbound tourism to Australia and New Zealand uh, has has been on a roll, particularly driven by people coming from China, you know, the Chinese tourists uh, coming initially in, in tour groups, but you know, increasingly independently too here and there are um, providing all kinds of, of demand in terms of inbound tourism. Now, look, there's also more competition. Chinese airlines themselves, among others, are, are flying more uh, to those places and, and not only Chinese airlines, you know, everybody knows when a place is doing well in terms of tourism. Uh, but look, when people fly to Australia or to New Zealand, sometimes even if they go on another carrier, sometimes even if that's not one of their partner carriers, they also do some domestic travel. Uh, you know, these are places with big geographies, and so even that can help those airlines. You know, even if they didn't uh, carry the the long haul portion of the journey, and you know, as far as the long haul portion. 
Is there any place in the world that has benefited more from uh, Boeing 787 Dreamliners? I, I mean, that just really seems to be uh, the perfect airplanes for those markets in terms of you know long range, uh, good operating economics, and 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 not too many seats to fill. Uh, so when you're talking about those those ultra long haul markets, which tend to be thin markets, you know, harder to fill a really big plane. In the old days, flying a really long distance without landing used to mean uh, needing a really big airplane, even though demand does just the opposite with distance. It decreases. Uh, now they have those those smaller planes that are that are very efficient and, and have the range to do that. So uh, yeah, airlines that uh, not too many years ago were struggling, uh, now doing quite well in global terms. Air New Zealand saw its profits fall for the full year in 2017. The operating profit margin declined from 14 to 10%. Seth, is that as bad as it sounds? Well, you know, that's driven uh, largely by a spike in, in fuel outlays. They, they paid 21% more for jet fuel, uh, despite flying just 3% more in, in ASK, available seat kilometer capacity terms. So, um, so, so look, that that explained a lot of it. Uh, you had those competitive pressures that I mentioned before. You know, again, it's it's helpful when people show up in in New Zealand uh, by whatever means in terms of the domestic network, um, but in terms of the long haul flights, yeah, uh, more competition. Um, so so they're doing fine. Uh, you know, many airlines around the world would be happy uh, with any double digit operating margin, just less fine than they were a year earlier. Tell us a little about Auckland as a hub. I mentioned that they don't get much global connecting traffic, but they do get some, don't they? Well, they do. Yeah, I mean, global, uh, you know, sort of partly the 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 operative word there, um, because they get a lot of of, of of connecting traffic. It just tends to be, uh, you know, people connecting maybe in Auckland uh, between somewhere else in New Zealand and perhaps somewhere abroad. Uh, so you know, you you somebody flying from oh, uh, you know, Christchurch uh, to to Tokyo connecting. In Auckland, uh, you know, someone flying between uh, you know Hong Kong and Wellington. Those two examples that I uh, I see here in, in IATA Pax IS uh, uh, data, you know, in terms of some of their their top connecting markets, um, and and they do get a little bit of, of this what's called sixth freedom traffic. That's that's uh, passengers connecting between two other countries. So. When you think about oh, you know, Air Canada, for example, that's an airline that does a whole lot of that kind of business, right? People you know, connecting between uh, the United States or points south and uh, Europe and Asia, transiting, uh, you know, Montreal, Toronto, or Vancouver. Obviously, New Zealand, with its geographic position, doesn't do a ton of that, but they do a little. Uh, you know, Air New Zealand itself flies uh, from Auckland to Buenos Aires, Argentina. So you can imagine that people are able to connect in Auckland between Buenos Aires and and uh, uh, other points in Australasia and beyond. You know, East Asia. And uh, they're not the only airline, by the way, that does that. Uh, uh, Lan uh, has, has a Santiago Auckland flight. So somebody could connect uh, on an interline basis between uh, those airlines too, although that, of course, would be more rare. Unlike Air New Zealand, Qantas dodged the fuel bullet by way of some good hedging. 
But aside from fuel, how did their second half shape up? They did well, uh, 12% for the second half and uh, 10% for the full year. You mentioned, Jason, in the intro that that matched uh, their figure 10% also from 2016 because of those hedges, which you uh, also mentioned. But, you know, rather good results. And by the way, driven uh, to some degree, to an important degree, by their frequent flyer program, uh, Qantas frequent flyer. A lot of airlines around the world don't really disclose. They don't break out how their loyalty programs are doing. Um, but Qantas is one that does. Uh, and Qantas frequent flyer accounts for 10% of the company's revenue, but for uh, 24% of its total profits, about $150 million in, in profits over the year. And can you touch briefly on all three airline units, starting with Qantas Domestic? Yeah, Qantas Domestic uh, uh, actually cut capacity to kind of try to squeeze up yields uh, and um, did very well. Uh, a 15% margin for the second half and, and almost 13% for the full year. And how about Qantas International? It was the laggard among the airline units. Now, this is a unit that years ago, um, and, and not too many years ago, I should say, was uh, was in crisis. Um, uh, you know, Qantas was very concerned about its international performance. So, um, through that lens, a, a margin of five percent for two thousand seven, uh, actually quite good. Six uh, percent, by the way, for the uh, for the second half. Uh, that on six percent ASK. Uh, growth. Um, so, you know, in historical terms, doing very well compared to how it's done at other points uh, in, in not so distant history. Um, but compared to the other units there, um, not doing uh, so well. In fact, uh, the only one of the three airline units that saw its margins fall during the second half, uh, the second calendar half of the year. And lastly, Jetstar. Jetstar did well. Uh, it you know a sixteen percent operating margin for the half, twelve percent uh, for the whole year. Jetstar's quite a complex beast at this point. I mean, we're talking about you know six different Jetstar divisions. You've got the joint ventures in Singapore and Japan, which are profitable. One in Vietnam is is not making money right now. Uh, you've got one in New Zealand, a uh, unit there. Um, you've got the long haul unit. Flying, uh, flying Dreamliners. We mentioned them before, and uh, the largest unit of all is is domestic. And Jetstar is is uh, you know it is the example that people hold up when 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 someone says you know well um, low cost uh, subsidiaries of legacy airline companies don't make money uh, or low cost long haul flying can't make money. Uh, you know what airlines love to say when they launch one of those units um, is, "Well, look at Jetstar." Uh, the reality is, it remains the only uh, uh, the only major example of, in the world. And, and to be clear, um, what we don't know is if the long haul flying makes money. We only know that Jetstar overall does make money. Uh, Qantas, you know, a lot going on here, Jason. Uh, just talking again, generally about the uh, the, the company. You know, flying those uh, Dreamliners from Perth all the way to London Heathrow. Uh, before long, uh, you know, finally flights between Australia and the UK, although not, of course, the the biggest prize of all for now, Sydney and 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 London. That that's that's too far to do, and uh, trying to get approval again for a joint venture with American. Last time it tried under uh, under the Obama administration, the U.S. regulators said no. We'll see now if if uh, after a few modest concessions and 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 with the new administration there. 
whether they can get that approval. And this brings us to Virgin Australia. Comparatively speaking, they had lousy results in 2017 and they've been underperforming for years. Clearly, they are missing out on whatever Air New Zealand and Qantas have got going. Well, I mean, one thing Air New Zealand and Qantas have are shareholders who are mainly interested in, in the profits of, of those airlines. Um, uh, you know, Virgin Australia, majority owned by other airlines uh, with, with sort of their own strategic uh, interests. Um, Etihad is one. You know, would, would they be flying to Abu Dhabi if Etihad wasn't a shareholder? I don't know, but I, I, I kind of doubt it. Singapore Airlines is another. Air New Zealand itself, by the way, used to be uh, a part owner. They sort of threw up their hands finally. They were tired of of, uh, of uh, the financial performance, even though they remain a key strategic partner. They still have a joint venture between Air New Zealand and Virgin Australia, but Air New Zealand no longer a part owner. Now, HNA Group is is uh, is is a part owner uh, out of China, as well as another uh, Chinese ownership interest. Uh, Virgin, by the way, also a joint venture with Delta, so that's another one that, like Air New Zealand, now a joint venture partner that's not an equity partner. Having said all that, uh, this is an airline that, that now does report operating profits. That's better than operating losses. Uh, you know, 2016, four percent margin, certainly not bad considering its recent history. That was back to two percent. Uh, for 2017, this is an airline that began its life as a as a low cost carrier that used to you know give Qantas fits. It used to be called Virgin Blue last decade, and then it took on all kinds of complexity, uh, really without the revenue to show for it. I mean, just one example of that. Um, we we you know we mentioned in in the newsletter um, all of their fleet types. Uh, you know, triple sevens, A three thirties, A three twenties, seven thirty seven, D one nineties, Fokker one hundreds, ATRs. Um, and, and look, you could say that about about other airlines around the world that are doing fine. But again, this is an airline that sort of doesn't have the the financial results to go along with all of the uh, layers of complexity it's added. It seems like the more it does over the years, the uh, sometimes the less money it earns. All right, moving from the very far south to the very far north, Scandinavia's SAS released results for its most recent quarter, which includes November, December, and January. Yes, I said yeah. that correctly. They have a weird quarter. Uh, they posted a negative 3% operating profit margin. Uh, that was quite an improvement over the same quarter in the prior year, which was a negative 7%. Seth, how would you characterize SAS's current trajectory? They're certainly doing well uh, looking at their own history. I feel like I've said that a few times during the show uh, uh, in, in different contexts. But yeah, um, you know, this is an airline that was, that was bankrupt and really on the verge of liquidating uh, a half decade ago. Uh, there's certainly a long way now. Um, from that. Now, look, negative um, 3%. Well, if they were doing that all year, they would have liquidated long ago, right? But luckily, um, in, in seasonal Europe, of course, uh, summer was was very strong. Uh, and they now do earn more money during their peak periods than they than they lose in, in the off-peak periods, uh, like the winter. Um, so for the full year, they notched a 6% operating margin. Um, now, look, that's not what you would hope for during what is kind of a look you, you mentioned the golden era in Australasia you know like the one that that has predominated that has that has uh, you know, dominated the US over the past several years you know, I would say Europe uh, in 2017 um you know kind of too early to to say we'll need a couple more years to 
you know, look back and say what, you know, whether that was a peak, but it was a really good year. So in a really good year, you still might want better than 6%. But among Scandinavian airlines, uh, that 6% was a whole lot closer to Finnair, which had 7% than it was to uh, Norwegian, which had negative 6%. And SAS, you know, um, has, has a, a lot to deal with that Finnair does. And it has those three hubs, you know, operations kind of split among Copenhagen, Stockholm, Oslo. Uh, that's not helpful, but it's just how things have to be because of the ownership structure owned by governments there and so forth. So uh, all things considering considered, rather, they are, uh, they're doing quite well. They're running a much more seasonal airline. Uh, that's one thing. Um, uh, you know, the, the off-peak losses don't matter as much as they once did because it's a smaller airline in the winter than it was in the summer. And it grew... 1% in that recent quarter, the yes, November, December, and January quarter, as you said, uh, whereas they grew 8% last summer in ASK terms. Um, so they've been playing the, uh, the the seasonal capacity scheduling game as, as well as anybody and doing rather well with it. Now, look, they're the first to say they benefited this year from positive uh, competitive uh conditions you know the growth airlines aside from norwegian uh, we're kind of looking elsewhere for growth um that's changing you know ryanair is looking a lot more at scandinavia that'll obviously impact sas but let's watch norwegian um you know if at some point they have to slow down uh, their rapid growth, which of course has, as we've talked on here, has has, has been unaccompanied by profits. Um, that that of course would be helpful uh, for SAS. Let's check in on Avianca. I'm particularly curious about them because they endured a 51 day pilot strike that mostly occurred in the fourth quarter, but they still managed to post a five percent operating profit margin for the quarter, seven percent for the year. Yeah, and that's uh, kind of a feather in their cap, right? I mean, to 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 go through what they did um, with that strike um, is, is and to still put up those kinds of numbers is indeed impressive. Um, it's hard to think of a more consistent airline than Avianca. All decade, they've they've uh, put up operating margins between six and eight percent. You know, that's, that's just always where they are. Uh, you know, never a crisis, at least you know for the past bunch of years, but uh, but never a a, a leader. Uh, in that regard, that by the way is where they think they'll be again in 2007, 2018 rather, uh, between six and eight uh, percent, as you said, seven percent in uh, 2017. Look, most regional economies are are improving. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, Colombia is is a is a big domestic market too, and it's one where you know they they're the market leader. A lot of competition, but the, they're the leader there. You know, even as Latam and Copa have, have sort of struggled to find their footing uh, in, in that market. But Avianca has hubs also in, in Lima and in uh, San Salvador. One thing, you know, there's Avianca Brazil in Brazil. Looks like the same thing in terms of the branding at all, but it's a it remains a separate company. Some common ownership uh, of the two, but uh, but they're not the same company. Um, th- there's there's the potential for Avianca and Avianca Brazil to finally merge uh, into one company. It's one thing to watch, uh, and for that matter, to propose joint venture with United. That's very much another thing uh, to watch for. Uh, Avianca. So among uh, U.S. airlines, you've got that one, United Avianca. Uh, and then you've got American hoping now for joint ventures with both Latam, still under review, and with Qantas, as I mentioned before. So a, a few uh, potential big uh, joint ventures to come here, uh, perhaps in 2018. 
Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, SeatBoost. SeatBoost combines a highly engaging mobile user experience with top-notch experiential marketing to sell upgrades and boost ancillary revenue. With SeatBoost, airlines gain robust data insights and maximize revenue on last-minute upgrade sales, whether it's first class, business class, or premium economy upgrades. Visit SeatBoost.com slash Airline Weekly to discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. Last week, Qatar Airways took what it calls its Q-Suite product to Washington Dulles International Airport. That's the second U.S. airport to get the new business class product after New York JFK. Q-Suites feature double beds for couples and up to four people traveling together can configure seats so that they're in one semi-private pod facing each other. The airline invited members of the media to take a look. One of those members was Seth. While he was there aboard the airline's Boeing 777-300ER, he was able to pull aside Qatar Airways Vice President of the Americas, Gunther Sauerwein, to chat about the Q-suite and much more. So because we're here in, in the Q-suite, I want to ask you, which are the next routes to get this product in the U.S.? In the U.S., we haven't announced it yet, but uh, what I can say so far, after JFK and uh, Washington, we're going to be adding another four cities in the U.S., so totally we fly to ten cities, and uh, four more will be added, and it's about a matter of weeks, uh, not months, but uh, I would say by starting autumn, those six cities will be operating with our QC product. And around the world, which are the other cities that already have Right now we're flying London, was our first destination, then it was Paris, uh, Mumbai, Bangalore and Seoul, followed by uh, Washington and JFK. So it's now seven destinations where we offer the product, but basically by the end of next year we're going to refit all our fleets with the new product, the QSB product. So basically it's the 777s and the 350s which we're going to be uh, offering. So all new 777s which join our fleet will be having the new QSB on board. And like uh, last week, we got our first 350-1000, which is flying now since Saturday to London, is already having the Q-Suite product on board as well. And when might we be able to look forward to that aircraft landing in the U.S.? Well, uh, we were the first airline who brought the 350-900 to the U.S., so who knows uh, if we're going to be the first airline bringing the 350-1000 to the U.S. We have no plans yet, because obviously we just got our first aircraft. We expect another five to be delivered during this year, and uh, we're going to be it's one of our flagship aircrafts now, so I wouldn't mind if uh, my corporate planning team is sending this brand-new uh, beauty to the U.S. as well. Standing here at Washington Dulles Airport, port. What kinds of passengers uh, will be in this cabin when passengers actually start boarding? Uh, Who who is it who flies you from here and where are they going? Right. Well, basically having uh, more than 150 destinations and flying to all the six continents, we have a variety of passengers on board. Uh, Washington has been very important for us because we always had a very high demand in business class and that's why we selected now not only having our 10 years anniversary, but also we want to upgrade our product and that was Washington 10 years anniversary flying that's also basically it's one reason why we selected queues with coming here so the mixture of the passengers uh, obviously Indian subcontinent uh, uh, from Africa to Asia even down to Australia so with the variety of destinations we can welcome the variety of passengers as well so it's a quite interesting group of uh, nationalities flying with us is the mix very different from other US gateways you know let's say from Miami or Los Angeles is, is, is it a very different demographic of passengers 
tours are the destinations uh, or, or the origins for that matter uh, very different uh, yes every city I would say has their flavor and uh, every city has a different uh, uh, passenger mix but by the end of the day the flights the majority of the flights of the US are landing at the same time in uh, Doha International Airport or Hamad International Airport and that means you're hitting the same connectivity wave so basically what we're offering is from Africa to Indian subcontinent to Asia and Australia that's the wave of uh, flights which we connect in cities like JFK where we added a second frequency we tap into more destinations of our network so adding frequencies into existing destinations will help us to have a better mix or a different mix on our uh, passengers flying with us. Of course, the majority of your customers don't actually get to fly up here in the in the Q Suite cabin. Uh, the majority of them would be in your economy cabin. Right. What you don't have right now uh, is a cabin in between the two. Uh, obviously, around the world, premium economy has become uh, uh, quite a big trend among a lot of other global airlines. A any plans to offer that? Uh, our group chief executive, uh, Officer Bistal Bakker, he is quite keen on it. He actually mentioned it last week again. He said he is not interested to start offering a premium economy product reason for that is what you see here now in business class is basically we call it first in business so the, the, the quality of product we're offering both in business class or even in economy class so we have passengers flying with us and you will check by yourself now and they asking us is this a premium economy product and our answer is with a smile on our face no it's our normal regular economy class so the standard and the quality of the seat and the service you're getting is already quite high which is bringing us in bar with other airlines. I want to ask you also, if I'm not mistaken, you serve 10 cities in the U.S. right now? Yes, 10 cities. Yeah. When I look at your network, it, it's clearly somewhat influenced by where the American Airlines hubs are. You know, a city like Philadelphia, I don't know, maybe it would have gotten service anyway, but you know, one would have to imagine that was influenced by Americans' presence there. Of course, um, you've now lost that, that code share with American Airlines, still a one-world partner. I'm just wondering, does, does that loss of the code share influence either your future network decisions or, or your ability uh, with what you do to, to sell uh, here in this country? Well, we as an airline, we are continuing growing. We have been growing. We're adding uh, between 12 and 15 new destinations uh, every year to our network. And uh, the American Airlines partnership is, was, and will be very important for us. And that's also reflected in our One World membership. So without the coach, uh, we can still offer all the opportunities to our passengers to either defeat, feed into our uh, flights, into our 10 cities in the US, or defeat into the American network. Equally important is our JetBlue uh, partnership where we also have coaches in the US so both partners, American number one and followed by JetBlue number two will help us to uh, both uh, have passengers joining us from offline points but also us contributing to their network by defeating into the network of American Airlines or JetBlue. Qatar, of course, did come to an understanding with the U.S. government in, in late January. Um, any hope that that might also then help lead to, who knows, for example, a, a reinstatement of the code share with American? This has been a bilateral government-to-government -government discussion, uh, but obviously it's good for everybody involved that we can put this at rest and focus again what's very important, and that's basically the passenger and service our passengers. And uh, by bringing this QSB product into Washington now, at least we give our commitment to serve the passengers with the best product we can offer. With 
economies in uh, your home region improving now, oil prices rising and so forth. Um, any thoughts of changing the uh, the configuration on your aircraft, adding more business class seats or, or anything like that? Not at this stage. So basically what we're looking at by adding more aircrafts to our fleet, and uh, which is right now uh, around 200 aircraft, we are uh, constantly looking into either open new destination or adding frequencies to existing destinations. So for Washington, as an example, flying here 10 years, obviously we're evaluating if we should add the second frequency, if we're using the right aircraft type. But right now the 777, with the configuration we're having here, is to our calculations the best thing what we can be doing. Yeah. Any update on the impact of the of the embargo by some of the other Arab states uh, against Qatar, uh, obviously impacting the airline because you you can't fly to a number of short haul destinations there. Um, any any new hopes? Uh, are, are, are things uh, stabilizing relative maybe to where they were in terms of the impact on your business or 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 not? Well, as soon it would be stabilizing, then obviously we don't mind because we're going to be flying to those destinations again. But I would say we have been using it as an opportunity because out of the US now, as this part of the world hasn't been flying, we got more access to the network. So we could sell more or are actually right now selling more. So even though it has been a disadvantage in some part of the world, for us operating out of the US has been a positive impact because we could tap into more seats into Indian subcontinent, into the Far East, which have first been occupied by people from the region. And finally, I want to ask you about Meridiana, or at least what used to be called uh, Meridiana, now of course rebranded Air Italy. A lot of involvement there. From your perspective, doing what you do in this part of the world, um, what what is your involvement with them? Are you helping to sell their flights, for example? If there's a corporation that wants to uh, uh, fly between, I don't know, New York and Rome, for example, would you and Qatar Airways be their point of contact? That's a very new and healthy or fresh uh, uh, business for us as well. We just announced now the rebranding of the airline. Uh, Going to be some network changes as well. At this stage, no. Commercially, we have no relationship. So we focus on Qatar Airways and our network and there has not been any uh, commercial alliance or, or we taking care of them out of the US. No, it's a total separate unit and uh, this will be until my CEO is calling me and tell me something different. But right at this stage, I have enough seats to sell out of the US for those passengers who want to fly with us. Gunter, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Seth. Very informative indeed. And thanks most of all to our listeners for spending this time with us. That wraps up episode 92 of the Airline Weekly Lounge. This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge was sponsored by SeatBoost. Visit SeatBoost.com slash Airline Weekly and discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. That's S-E-A-T-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash Airline Weekly.